as, as uh, Jonathan said, welcome, and we're so glad you're here, whether you're a long-timer or a first-time visitor, just so glad you're here worshiping with Downtown Prez. And what we're doing this, uh, this September and October, we've been looking at and are going to continue to look at the life of a disciple. And, and by disciple, we don't mean a special sort of Christian or a different kind of Christian. This is really the New Testament preferred term for a believer. Uh, it really, the New Testament doesn't use the word Christian hardly any, a few times. But usually it speaks of a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus as a, a disciple or a believer. So we're considering, mostly from the Gospel of Mark, what does the life of a disciple, a normal disciple, involve? What does it look like? This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. That's the whole text I'll be using, Mark chapter 7. I remember from high school English, I think it was 11th grade, that one year we were looking at some plays. We did some of the classic Shakespeare kind of stuff. But one 20th century play that we looked at, probably because I'm, I'm from Mississippi and this was a Mississippi author, at least born in Mississippi, is Streetcar Named Desire, Tennessee Williams, Streetcar Named Desire. And I'd never read it or seen a film adaptation of it. If you've never seen the 50s film adaptation of Streetcar Named Desire, you may need to see it because I'm a guy and I'm telling you, Marlon Brando is amazing looking in this movie. Uh, it's worth it just to, see, just to see him. But one of the main characters is Blanche Dubois. Uh, Marlon Brando plays the, the, the main male character, Stanley Kowalski. And Stanley has a wife, and his wife's sister is Blanche, so um, Stanley's sister-in-law. And the way the story begins is she's coming in to visit her family. They live in New Orleans. And um, the way she presents herself is that she's very ladylike and just very demure and just easily, you know, her, her ladylike sensibilities are very easily offended and as the story goes on, what you come to find out is that she really has been living this very seedy life and, and really is something of a tramp and known as a tramp and really had to leave her town because of her reputation. But I remember in, a, like I said, I think it was 11th grade, I remember our high school teacher pointing out that as you go through this story, as Blanche is staying with her sister and her brother-in-law, she keeps taking baths that she'll say, I just, I'm always better after a bath. I'm always ref- just a new creature after a bath. I'm refreshing. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, I get refreshment. And our teacher pointed out, because I probably wouldn't have noticed it, that, you know, Tennessee Williams did that on purpose. She keeps feeling the need to get clean. This passage is, is a, a great tie into that. It's, it's about being dirty and, and what to do about it. And it's interesting because as as you read this, I want you to listen for the word defile or defiled. It shows up seven times in this passage in some form or fashion. It's about the human condition, not about like physical stains or stains on your clothes or something like that, but about human beings being, being defiled. And this is the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't dispute that point. He doesn't say, hey, 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 let's stop talking in terms of people being defiled or dirty or messed. He doesn't say that. He doesn't dispute that point. What he disputes is, what do you do about it? How do you cleanse what's defiled? So let's look at this. And again, what we're trying to look at is, 
what does the normal life of a normal disciple involve? Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition." For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I went to seminary in St. Louis, and my first summer to live in New Orleans was 1993. And some of you may know this, that was the year that there was a huge flood of the Mississippi River. And uh, I, I took part in sandbagging and, you know, volunteer work when that was going on. But I remember at one point going downtown, down by the arch. You know, the arch is right on the Mississippi River in St. Louis 
to see, to see the Mississippi had never seen it like that. In fact, it was so high that these steps that were put by the, by the arch for, you know, visitors to be able to walk down near the river, the river was coming up those steps. Okay, ju- just, for, just for numbers' sake, the amount of water at that point has been estimated that it was 1 million cubic feet per second in St. Louis at the, at the height of the flood. So 1993, 1 million cubic feet per second. That is not the great flood of the Mississippi River in the 20th century. The great flood was 1927. There's a great book about this called Rising Tide. At that same spot where I was standing in St. Louis in 1927, 3 million cubic feet per second were going by. Just an epic historic flood. The writer of this book, Rising Tide, he, he describes this phenomenon, and I, I've never seen it. I've never heard of it before, but it's called sand boils. And a sand boil happens when a river has swelled so big, and it's so powerful, and it's so unstoppable. It is bringing so much pressure on everything that's trying to constrain it that it will just start to find whatever weakness there is. If the levees are holding, if the sandbags are holding, it'll just go into the ground to find some weakness. And when it finds it, you'd have this phenomenon where water would go into the land, into the riverbank, into the levee, and all of a sudden, this like a geyser, like a volcano of water would shoot up in the air. It's called a sand boil. And in fact, the writer talks about what was really frightening was when the water that shot up, if it began to turn brown, that means it's taking the dirt with it. It's, it's destroying the levee. It's destroying your protection. That's a pretty good optic about the way the Bible describes what's in us getting out. And, you know, like in the same way that 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 flood was so massive that you could volunteer, you could sandbag, you could build reinforcements, you could just do every, you know, Army Corps of Engineers, do whatever, volunteers. It was unstoppable. It was delusional to think that you could control it. In fact, they ended up in 1927 having to blow up levees and let, actually, the poor be flooded to spare everybody else. I shouldn't say they had to, they chose to. But there was no stopping it. L- listen to this refrain of Jesus, the way he's describing our insides. And he's speaking uh, generally. Speak, if, if he says man, he just means human being, everyone. Verse 15. There's nothing outside a person that by, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. He could not be more explicit. Jesus does not dispute there is such a thing as a defiled person. There is such a thing as a defiled condition. Now, we don't really use that word, but we might say, whatever, messed up. Let myself down, let other people down, twisted, whatever, however you would say it. He acknowledges there is such a thing, but he makes this clarification. Don't think about yourself or think about other people 
that the way that happens is that I was either good or morally neutral, and something acted upon me or rubbed up against me, and then I became defiled. He said, it is the things inside that sand boil out, and you thought you had all these protections, all these disciplines, all these great measures you had taken. This stuff that comes out, that's what defiles us. So let's look at this, and I I just want to frame it in terms of, according to Jesus, what's the real problem and what's the real solution? And I think you already have got a pretty good preview about the first part. What's the real problem and what's the real solution? Now, for this first point, let's think about two things. What's the apparent problem and then what's the real problem? What does it look like the problem is and what is the real problem? This passage starts out with this exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus. The the Pharisees are watching Jesus' disciples eat, and they're not doing something. The Pharisees assumed devout, godly, righteous people would do. Jesus' disciples would just come to food and just eat it, and they didn't go through this ceremonial washing. Now, hit the pause button. The Pharisees are so often like the bad guys in the Gospels that I need to clarify this every so often. The Pharisees started out as what we might call a reform movement. They were calling the Jews back to robust obedience of God's law. You know, these are not the ten suggestions, as has been said. We are the people of God. To what other nation has the law of God been given? We are the people that are to be God's representatives on the earth. We, we've got, this is God's law. We've got to obey it. So they, they studied it. They taught it. They memorized it. They were to model obedience. They also began to craft what we might call guidelines or best practices or protections to be an obedient person. Well, one of those protections was, hey, if you've been out in a public place and you're about to eat, you need to really wash up. Now, how do we hear that? We hear that in terms of germs and microbes and disease. That was not, that's not why they washed. I mean, I'm sure they would wash dirt off their hands. But they were thinking in terms of purity and impurity. That we are the people of God. We're to live in God's presence as pure people. You go to the market, you, you might have had some exchange with a, with a Jew who's unclean. They did something wrong or they were somewhere they weren't supposed to be, or they ate something they weren't supposed to, and now they're in an unclean state. If you just handle that food, it gets on you. And we don't think like that, but they did. And a lot of cultures do. Or, worst case scenario, maybe you dealt with a Gentile, and they sold you food, or you got too close, or you touched something that they had touched. Before you bring food into your body, As a clean person, a devout person, you make sure that you wash. You wash the right way. You wash the way that our elders taught us to wash, and you're good. And here's how it reads. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed for the Pharisees, and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, what does Jesus say? 
He says this. First off, you have made your externals, your external behaviors that you came up with, not, not God-given ones, your guidelines. You have made your guidelines equal to or surpassing God's law. But then he says this. You went an extra step. You've taken your guidelines, your external behaviors, and you've actually used those as a way to disobey God. Now, what's the example he uses? And it's down here, verse 9 and following. Apparently in their day, something you could do if you wanted to, was that if your parents were getting into what we would call their senior years, there is no social security. There are no 401ks. There aren't all these multiple resources of uh, resources for those who are under-resourced. Your 401k was your kids. So if, if you're one of the kids and your parent is getting into his or her golden years and they need that help and they can't do for themselves, if you wanted to, you could say, hey, mom and or dad, the money that I would have used to take care of you now I'm going to take that and rather I'm going to devote it to God as a special offering. And there's a term for it, korban. And Jesus says, look at what you're doing. The fifth commandment says you honor your father and your mother, like the whole time. You just made void one of the ten commandments written on tablets of stone by your guideline. You can actually... Take the thing that you thought was going to help you obey God, and it can almost, it can war against the actual laws of God. I mean, what this might look like in our day would be uh, a parent yelling at a child to keep their eyes closed when they pray, which is never commanded in Scripture, which may be the first time you've heard that. There is no biblical command to close our eyes when we pray. But it might be that to a parent it looks like to keep your eyes open. I mean, you're virtually an atheist now. And so I must yell at you to show you the, the seriousness and how high the stakes are when God never... It can be a good thing, but God never required it. So don't feel too, don't feel too different than these folks. But to the Pharisees, the apparent problem is I am in a good place... Or maybe the wider Jewish perspective at that time it might have been, I'm either in a, good, you know, I'm in a good place or a neutral place, but I can be acted upon and defiled. And Jesus says, that's not true. Where does it come from? What's the source of the defiling? I mean, when you think about it, we're trying to, we're trying to be more careful with our planet. And biblically, we should... have a a great stake in the care of creation. If pollution gets into a river, then it gets into all the tributaries, then it gets into groundwater and all that kind of stuff, we should should be wondering, what what is the source of the contaminants? All right, what's the source? Verse 6, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, just think about that. Jesus says, hundreds of years ago, like seven or eight hundred years ago, Isaiah described you. He said that these people honor me with their lips, and they did. The Pharisees said things like, to God alone belongs the glory. 
and that he alone is the creator. A Pharisee would have been quick to say, the only true God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They honored God with their lips. And here is God in the flesh saying, their heart is far from me. What is your heart? And any time I teach on the heart, I feel like I have to wade through our way of using that term versus the biblical way of using that term. We either mean the organ, you know, the blood-pumping organ, or we just mean our feelings. Like that hurt my heart can mean that hurt my feelings, or that touched my heart, that touched my feelings. Biblically, the heart is the control center of who you are and what you do. And it includes your feelings, but it's so much more. It's your thinking. And that's interesting because sometimes we say, hey, I think we're approaching this too much with our heads, and we need to approach it with our hearts. That's not how Scripture reads. Your heart includes your thinking and your feeling and the will to do something. It's your secrets. It's fantasies. It's aspirations. It's my mental picture of how my future will be. All that's in your heart. Where does defiling come from? It comes from the heart. Listen to what he says. Verse 18, second part of verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and it's expelled? Verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and all the things that he lists. Let me give you kind of a, an odd example from church history. There was a Christian in the early centuries named Hilarion. It's almost spelled like hilarious. Hilarion. And a guy named Jerome wrote about Hilarion. Jerome is the guy that translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate. Jerome records that Hilarion, he wanted to be close to God. He wanted to seek God. And so he went out into the desert wilderness to pray and meditate, and be close to God. And Jerome records that Hilarion's experience was that on a regular basis, he would find himself surrounded, quote, by naked women. They weren't out there. He went as far away from people as he could to seek, to fast, to pray. But what did he take out there with him? His heart. And he was honest about it. I've left everything behind to seek Jesus and try to be close to him. And I'm surrounded by New Orleans. Because I took it out there with me. That's all of us. You know? And and the the interesting thing about... Again, I never assume that if I'm talking about Christians that that's you. I'm not assuming that you're a Christian. but, But there are many people in here who have professed faith in Christ and they're baptized and they join the church. They've said, I'm a follower of Christ. I mean, think about, for you, the latter. We say we believe this, but we sort of show our cards when we still act like, I think something acted on me and it made me do such and such. Like, for instance, we might never say this, but we're prone to think, you know what, if they didn't have such a perfect little Instagrammable, squeaky clean marriage, I would not covet. 
as if it put the covenant into our heart. And Jesus says, you showed up with it. You showed up with the covenant. Now, can something aggravate it, provoke it, stir it? Yeah, absolutely. Does it matter where you go and who you hang out with and what you watch? Jesus talked about that. But the source is what? The heart. Think about this one. The way Christians have talked about the Internet for the last 20 or so years, especially ye who have children of middle school and high school age, the Internet does not put lust into a human being. It's already there. Can it provoke it? Can it give it opportunity? Of course it can. But we showed up with it. Every kid showed up with it. What about this one? Uh, we're prone to think, yeah, I, again, speaking in terms of disciples, I, I, I'm not in the Word. I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not studying it or thinking about it much. I'm, I'm not praying much. I'm slammed at work right now. So, so the way we're talking is that this thing from the outside worked upon me, and that's where my independence comes from, my independence that I don't really need to talk to God. And I don't need to live off his words because something acted upon me called uh, overwork. The neglect and the independence was, was already there. It was just given an opportunity. Yeah, actually, on that one, it was given the opportunity where all of us sort of give each other a pass. Like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, because if work calls, we must yield. I, I don't want to insult our intelligence or beat a horse to death here. But here's the big takeaway that I'm, I'm trying to get us to buy into. You and I have a heart. And I think... Just as messed up people anyway, but especially as Americans, our tendency when we see a sand boil, whatever that is, I can't believe I began a relationship with that person when I married. I can't believe I watched that. I can't believe I took money and got away with it and no one caught me. I just never thought I would do that. I, I can't, on and on and on. When a sand boil goes up, we tend to think, Okay, what's the answer? I'll control it. I will control it. I will, fi- I will fight it with discipline. I will fight it with uh, attitude. I will fight it with accountability. I will fight it with education and learning more. We cannot fix ourselves. The biblical depiction is that we are so, we are so defiled... We cannot fix it. And Jesus doesn't dispute that it needs fixing. But he says, you can't fix it. And you're not acted upon. It comes from within. And if you stop there, it would almost seem like this is a passage devoid of good news. I mean, something that as a church we're committed to is that we always want to preach the gospel and preach Good news. The gospel is not for me to like beat you about the head and shoulders and then say like have a nice walk to your car. The gospel should be like actual good news for defiled people. And in this passage, you know, it's like Jesus, it's, it's as if he says, 
hey, you know what? Uh, you're more wicked than you thought you were, and it's actually even worse than that, and let me give you some particulars, and it comes from your insides. And we're done. Where's the good news in this passage? I think there's different ways to get at it. But look at verse 4. And think about Blanche Dubois. She won't say she's dirty, but she feels that she needs washing. Verse 4. When they, that's Pharisees, Jewish culture, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now, the English translation there says wash. The Greek verb is baptize. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It it reads the baptisms of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, I'll only mention in passing that it is very hard to immerse a couch, but you can sprinkle it. Okay, just, just don't have many opportunities to broach that. Just want to mention that. But that's not the main point. The main point is, when does, when does baptism language first show up in Mark? You know, we're, we're just dipping into one part, but before there were chapters and verses, and if you were just reading Mark, when did you first encounter the term baptize? And it's just almost at the very beginning because you've got this wild man, John the Baptist. And he's sent by God to be the the predecessor, the forerunner of the Messiah. And John the Baptist, he's an incredibly important man in the history of redemption. But he would say things like, you know, he, Jesus, he must increase but I must decrease. He was always pointing away from himself. But at the beginning of Mark, he says this, I have baptized you with water. In other words, if, if you are willing as a Jew to do something that normally a Gentile would do, if they wanted to become a Jew or identify with the Jews, that they would undergo this ceremonial washing and oblation. If to get ready for the Messiah, if you're willing to come out and hear me and let me baptize you, that's great. But I baptize you with water. I can wash your outside. But one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His agency of washing is the Spirit of God. And what, what was John saying? I, I can depict what we need. But I can't do what we need. One is coming after me, and he can do what you need. He can wash you with the Spirit on your insides. Here's the bad news. Our disobedient children, or my uh, non-thoughtful friend, or my overbearing employer doesn't make me angry. I showed up with anger. I showed up with resentment. I showed up with grudge holding. I showed up with all of it. We have hearts up under all the behaviors, and they're defiled. That's the bad news. And you know what the good news is? If you believe in Jesus, he will cleanse your heart. He'll cleanse our defiled hearts. 
And get this. Where's, where's the good news in this passage? Well, kind of hard to find, but you know what came right before it? It's almost like Mark just kind of wanted you to know this before this passage. And I'd say, it's not an accident. Crafty Mark, he knew exactly what he was doing. Is right before this. It, it's an account of just all kinds of people with diseases that make them, guess what? Unclean. It said, if they just touched the edge of Jesus' clothes, they were healed. Like before we get to this passage, Mark wanting you to know, you know what? You touch Jesus, and you might be thinking that you're going to give him a problem. You know what? He'll take care of your uncleanness, but your cleanness, but his cleanness will cleanse you. What do I do with my anger, this angry heart? What do I do with this selfish heart? I don't want conversations to be about other people. I want conversations to be about me. And it affects everybody around me. What do I do with this heart? What do I do 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 with the fact that the Scriptures are not worth gold, yea, than much fine gold to me? I would so much rather have a lot of money than the Bible. What do I do with that? Bring your heart and let Jesus touch it and cleanse you. What does it mean to be a disciple? One thing is this, is that we're people who know that we have hearts. We cannot fix our own hearts. And we're to be the heart people. You know what that means? That if you are a workaholic, instead of saying, yep, work too much, need to stop working, that can be such a badge of honor. That can be such a humble brag. Hashtag humble brag. Yeah, just working all the time. We need to look at behaviors, but Jesus' disciples are the ones who sort of, okay, there's the behavior. Get up underneath it and say, why does my heart reach for that? But here's the trick. Don't try to think your heart into being healed. Don't try to think and logic chop your heart into being cleaner. You know what you do? We dig, here's the behaviors, here's the heart. Let's take a look at it and then take your heart to Christ. And say, help me. For the first time or for the millionth time, help me. Wash me. Change me. Let me end with this. Uh, I feel like I'm always showing you some book. It's kind of show and tell. So here's another one. And this is a book, it's a biography of a pastor. I read this when I was in college. I think it was part of what God used to start heading me toward the ministry. A guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's from Wales. And the first 10 years of his ministry were in Wales. He was a medical doctor. And his career track was probably taking him... Some people would think he probably would have been Churchill's physician if he had stayed on that track. But he becomes a pastor in this little kind of crummy town in Wales. It's, it was a sort of a dying industrial town. And God really began to work. People become Christians at a level that no one's ever seen before. The church is just... People can tell in this town something's happening. There was a woman who lived in this town where Dr. Lloyd-Jones pastored, and she was a spiritist, like a medium. And, uh, and actually, she charged quite a bit of money every Sunday night to lead a spiritist meeting in that city. But one Sunday night, she was under the weather. 
And so she couldn't leave this meeting. And, and she would watch these people going into this church, and they just seemed like they were anticipating something. And that they had some, almost like they had a secret. And so she decided to go. And she went and was, she was converted. And later on, she said this when she gave her testimony about it. She said, that night, quote, The moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a supernatural power. Now, that's her jam. I mean, that's what she does. I was conscious of a supernatural power. I was conscious of the same sort of supernatural power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings. But there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. And I don't know if she knew the Gospels or not, but in the Gospels, when there's a demon, it's usually not described as an evil spirit. It's described as what? An unclean spirit. And she was normal to the feeling and the experience of that. She said, when I came into your chapel, there was a palpable spiritual thing going on, but the spirit was clean. That's the spirit of Christ. We show up with bad hearts. Christ is physically seated at the Father's right hand. But by His Spirit and by His finished work, He can cleanse us and change us and break the power of sin. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were very honest about our condition, did not pull punches. Pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us strong faith, whether that's for the first time to believe or for the millionth time, to take you at your word that we are what you say we are, and if you say you have made us clean by your blood, then we are clean. Would you break the power of sin? Would you change our hearts? We praise you that you're greater than our hearts that we can't tame, but you can transform. We pray in your name. Amen.